So this evening we are continuing our exploration of Mac. Uh, as you know, Mac is one of the four eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when we, as we've been going through Mark, I've been trying to remind you that Mark is writing to followers of Jesus facing great persecution in Rome. Many of them are living underground, fearing for their lives. Many have lost everything for the cause of Christ. Many of them will read Mark 8, verse 34. If you ever must follow if whoever will come after me must deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. For many of them, that will be literally. Uh, their faith in Christ is matching them to death, as it were. They have lost everything. They have lost family, friends. They have lost their wealth for Christ. And many, I think, in the midst of such great uh, persecution, are probably being tempted to abandon Christ. There will be undoubtedly those We'll be going through this terrible moment and wondering, is Jesus still worth it? This taking up the cross stuff is proving perhaps just too literal. And they may be feeling worried, tired. And many of us as we come here this evening are probably facing different situations. We're trying to live for God and we feel worried, tired for whatever reason. Well, Mark is writing to encourage them and us to press on. Uh, Mark has been called a pamphlet for at times. I would say for all times. That's why we are going through this uh, book. It's so encouraging. Because throughout Mark, Mark is answering a simple question, who is Jesus? And Mark's answer to the difficulty they are facing in their lives, the difficulties we are facing in our lives, is simply to ask, ask that question. Who is Jesus? Who do you say I am? And throughout Mark is answering that question, isn't it? Uh, Mark wants to show them that Jesus is worth everything. And because he's worth everything, because he is the Christ of God, we must keep surrendering to him. Now, we are currently in the middle of Mark. As you know, I reminded you that Mark is divided in three, isn't it? Mark chapter 1 to 8 is Jesus in Galilee. Mark chapter 9 to 10 is Jesus uh, on the journey to Jerusalem. And uh, the rest of Mark towards chapter 16 is, of course, takes place in Jerusalem. We are in the middle of Mark. And uh, this morning, we saw Jesus finish his sermon at Caesarea Philippi on what it means to follow him. And this morning in particular, we learned that we must live for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is coming in glory again. That's what we looked at this morning. We posed that question. Are you ready for the coming of Jesus? And I hope all of us would answer, we are ready, not based on our righteousness, but based on what Christ has done on the cross for us. Now you remember that Mark chapter 9 verse 1, we stress the point that in Mark chapter 9 verse 1, Jesus is promising that some of the disciples who are listening to him at Caesarea Philippi are going to have an advanced preview of this coming glory. That's what we said. Well, the moment has arrived now. Please turn with me to Mark 9 verse 2 to 8. Let's just read on, work through these passages, this passage verse by verse, because this passage gives all followers of Jesus two comforting truths 
concerning who Jesus is. In whatever situation you are facing today, these are the two comforting truths that Mark wants to share with you about who Jesus is. The first truth, which is in front of your outline, is that Jesus is the glory of God made visible to us. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the glory of God made visible. Now, it has been a week or so since Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi. Mark tells us that Jesus is now going to the mountain. Most likely the mountain that Jesus is going there with John, James, and Peter is Mount Ammon. Um, And we read this in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Dr. Luke, who has the same account here with um, additional detail, tells us that Jesus is going up the high mountain. Why? He's come to pray. And we think that most likely Jesus actually stays on the mountain for a day or two. This is why when we, when we read Luke's account, uh, Luke places what happens next uh, after eight days rather than six days. The two additional days he's concerned with really relates to Jesus perhaps spending time there praying. And according to Luke, as Jesus is praying, what happens is that the disciples fall asleep. <laughs> now, this is the first time they are getting into this sleeping habit. And uh, we might already start criticizing them before we get to Gethsemane. But I think it's true to say that the reason probably why they are falling asleep is most likely that this is deep in the night. So we can probably excuse them for dozing during a prayer meeting. Now, unfortunately for them, uh, this is a wrong time to doze off. Because they are at risk of missing one of the, what, the most beautiful sight the world has ever seen. Right now as they are dozing off, I'm sure there's a sermon about that, Jesus is being transfigured. Let's read on verse 2 to verse 3. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, verse 2 ends. Verse 3, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, the original word, and this is important for transfigured, does not mean transformation. No, the word means revealing the true essence in an outward visible form. The point is that what's happening to Jesus there is not that he's being transformed. Rather, actually what's happening is that he's lifting the veil to reveal his true nature to the disciples. This, what we're seeing, we're about to, what we read in verse 3, is what Jesus has been all along. He's not becoming that. That's who he is. And the world, well, the disciples now, uh, when, they do, when they wake up, they, they will see that brilliance. This is who Jesus is. And that's quite important. Because you see the way Mark, let's read verse 3 again. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could alter them. Mark is specific that, look, is specific that Jesus' appearance is altered, is radiant throughout, as it were. The point here is that the beams of, if we imagine this, the beams of brightness and whiteness that is emerging, is emerging from within the being of Jesus himself. This is not Jesus reflecting light from someone else, it's not being a mirror, 
Or it's not, it doesn't have a, a torchlight on him, as it were. This is, it's coming from within his very essence. Jesus, he is the light shining in a dark place, on that dark mountain. And as we look at Jesus there, shining brightly on that mountain, while the world is asleep in darkness, our thoughts immediately turn to the Old Testament. And they particularly turn to the, we could turn to Exodus, but they actually turn to the book of Daniel, don't they? Because in the book of Daniel, we have many visions there that Daniel had of extraordinary apocalyptic visions. And one of them is in Daniel 7, which we have read before as we've been going through Mark. It took place in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And in the vision, Daniel is looking at a courtroom event in heaven. The Lord God, the ancient of days, is sitting on his throne. And here is what Daniel sees. Daniel 7, uh, verse 9. Well, Daniel 7, verse... In fact, I need to look this up. Daniel 7, if you turn with me to Daniel 7, uh, verse 9 to... Daniel 7, verse 9 to verse 10. It's on page 745. Well, 44. Daniel 7, verse 9 to verse 10. Daniel records these words for us. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the air of his head like pure wool. His, his throne was fiery flames. His wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, thousand saved him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Uh, the appearance of the Ancient of Days there, described in verse 9, is much the same, actually, as the transfigured Christ. Look at that again. His, his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames, his wheels were burning. The, the brightness though there of his clothing, his hair, just like the transfigured Christ, emanating glory as it were, the ancient of days from himself. And we shouldn't be surprised there, because it is describing the same thing, so to speak. The one who sat on the throne is Jesus, is God himself. Isn't it? Jesus is God, is reflecting, so to speak. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. That's what the transfiguration is teaching us. And we find this teaching in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews is confirming what we are seeing in the transfiguration. Jesus is the glory of God made visible. 
Then we have to ask the next question, don't we? What is the glory of God? Well, God's glory is His divine splendor, His beauty, His reputation, His magnificence for which He alone is worthy of honor of. The glory of God is essentially who God is. And we might start off by thinking, first of all, that the glory of God is a sum of his divine attribute, which all together make him the God of glory. As Thomas Watson reminds us, the glory of God is a sparkling of the deity. God's very life lies in his glory. And he cannot decrease or increase. The glory of God is already infinite unchangeable and eternal. And this glory and majesty of God belongs to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the glory of God is the sum of his attributes, but also it includes his actions in history. As our Lord and our King and Savior. You see, all that God does is glorious because it displays his glorious nature. And when we think of his action and his attribute, we realize that the total sum of God's glory, when we think about it, it is too sparkling for any creature to look upon. We cannot see the full measure and wonder of the glory of God. Moses in the Old Testament, we remember, wanted to see the glory of God. But God made it clear to Moses that if he saw the glory of God, he would have to die. Uh, we read that in Exodus chapter 33, verse 17, if you turn there. Exodus 33, verse 17 to 20. The second book in the, in the Old Testament says this. Exodus 33, 17 to 20. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 17, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he that is God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me. And leave. Even if you had no sin, you cannot withstand God's naked revealed glory. No, none of creation can see God's glory and remain as it is. As it. Because to see God in his essence is to become God in effect. So the issue is not sin. The issue is creature. The fact that we are sinners simply intensifies our problem. And yet, we think about this. God, by his grace, has condescended to make his glory as visible as possible through the face of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says this, For God, who said, Let light shine, out of darkness as shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. The face of Jesus is the very face of God. This is why Revelation 22 verse 2 to 3 says that one day all followers of Jesus shall see God face to face. You are heaven bound, I hope, and when you get to heaven, you will see the face of God. But whose face will you see? The face of Jesus. Glorified. We cannot, as human beings, directly look into the very essence of God, as I've said, but we can see as much of God as is humanly possible through Jesus. Just as we cannot look directly upon the sun, Right? We are close to it to see it all directly to blind us. We cannot look upon God directly. But we can look upon the sun, can't we? Through it being reflected in the water and we can go, oh, there is a sun, as it were. Or in the river. Well, Jesus, if you like, is that lake that enables us to look upon the glory of God, but somehow shielding us from being burned up, as it were, from death. Jesus is able to do this, you see, because as well as having the full glory of God, Jesus possesses a second glory, his personal glory. His glory as one who's fully God and fully man. It's actually a glory that's just unique to Jesus, that the Spirit of God doesn't possess and God the Father doesn't possess. It is a glory personal to Jesus in his incarnation. And it's through that personal glory of Jesus, it mediates, if you like, the capacity for us to look on God, to see God as it were. And this is what this transfiguration of Jesus is teaching us, isn't it? It's telling us that the glory of God is now visible in Jesus. We can behold the glory of God. And because Jesus is the glory of God made visible... This sets Jesus apart from all things in creation. If we want to see God, we must come to Jesus. Jesus is not one of many spiritual leaders in the world. He is not one of Hinduism's 330 million gods. He is not one of the 40 prophets in the Quran. Jesus is not just Jesus the great. Jesus is the one and only Lord God. Jesus is the very essence of God's glory. And this means, as we sit here this evening, Jesus is all you need in your life. No one else. As I thought about this, I realized that sometimes we forget how great, as I like to say, it is to be a Christian. We forget what a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian. If you are in Christ, beloved, Regularly remind yourself that you know our glorious God intimately. And come before him now quietly perhaps in reverence and worship. Thank Jesus for revealing the glory of God to you. I ask him to help you not lose sight of this wonder. That you have a relationship with a glorious God through Jesus. This is the first comfort we learn here. Jesus is the glory of God made visible to us. Here is the second and final comfort uh, in this amazing passage. And it is this. Jesus is the glory of God, not just made visible, but made available to us. Available to us. Let us rejoin the scene there. We left on the mountain. Let's go back to the mountaintop as it were. Verse 
So, as the dazzling light, we left in verse 3, as the dazzling light of glory is emerging there from Jesus, uh, something else happens. Two figures from Israel's past appear. Let's read verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Now, the appearance of these two guys is full of meaning. We could spend the whole day just talking about it. Moses and Elijah are the only two prophets who ascended Sinai and actually met with God. Uh, Elijah went up to Oreb, which is just another name for Sinai. Now these two prophets, to, to have ascended and talked with God on Sinai, they are now meeting with God again in the person of Jesus. And Luke chapter 9, verse 31 says they are talking to Jesus. What are they talking about? Mark doesn't tell us. But Luke tells us they are talking to Jesus about his departure. The original word for departure that Luke uses there in Luke 9, verse 31. Interesting that these accounts occur in the ninth chapter. Uh, The original word that Luke uses is exodus. They have come to chat to Jesus about his plans to lead his people out of the bondage of sin into a new glorious exodus. You see, this new exodus will be his death. His death will act, if you like, as a new Passover. And the resurrection that Jesus will accomplish will result in constituting a new people. When we've been going through Mark, we've made the point that Jesus, in some sense, comes as a new Moses to lead his people out. But his people isn't Israel, the physical Israel. His people now is the new church of God. He's leading sinners who have repented out of the bondage of sin into a new glorious exodus. I imagine as they are talking about these things, there must be excitement to the voices of Elijah, of Moses. I mean, they must be excited, isn't it? They must be so excited. This is what they have worked to. This is what they looked forward to. And here they are, summoned from glory to come and discuss with God in person. We know they're excited. I think they're excited. I think they're excited. Why? Because the sleepy disciples get up now. (laughs) They must have heard the chat. And Peter opens his mouth, doesn't he? Uh, Verse 5 to 6. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. So far, so good. Let us make three tents. All right? One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6, Mark comments, perhaps, I'm sure with Peter's uh, very strong input, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, the more we think about Peter's unsolicited advice to Jesus, no one asked him for his opinion, uh, the more it baffles us. I just spend time meditating that, and the more it will baffle you. And I'm sure there will be a queue in heaven to ask Peter questions about this statement he makes. I I would imagine some people will go up to Peter and say, Peter, uh, you wanted to build a tent for Jesus, right? Was it raining? (laughs) Did you you need one? Was rain coming? What made you think Jesus our God needs your help to build a tent? What prompted you, Peter, to suggest three tents, not one? 
or even six. Peter, were you on some medication perhaps? We might be prone to ask those questions when we meet him. But I think we should not be so quick to chastise Peter on this one. I believe the key to understand what Peter is thinking is in verse 6. For they did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Put yourself in, why would Peter be terrified? Well, put yourself in Peter's shoes for a minute. You are a Jewish man facing Moses and Elijah. Jesus is there. And these three luminous figures are bathed in light, emanating from Jesus. Light that you, all your life you've been taught, if you stand in it, if you see this light, it will kill you. Because this light is the very presence of God. You've learned that at the synagogue. No one stands in God's presence and lives. And here you are. You are completely terrified. And yet you know that this glory of God is good for you. And that's why in verse 5 you acknowledge it. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. You are trembling with joy. Somehow. You are doing your own round of some two as it were. You know that this glory of God is good for you. It is good for your people. This is Peter, isn't it? He is afraid of the glory of God displayed in Jesus, but he cannot let go of his Jesus. And what Peter is doing is that he wants in on this glory, but he wants to manage it. What do you do then, if if you're thinking that way? Well, the only thing Peter can think of is that God made his people in a tabernacle. And that's quite important because, you see, the original word for shelters here is literally tabernacle. So Peter comes up with an idea. Let us build three tabernacles. Let us build three shelters now. Now, when we think about that again, it does not make sense at first. Until you remember that the tabernacle in the Old Testament, why did God build the tabernacle in the Old Testament? It was built to shelter the people, not God. It was built to shelter the people from the Shekinah glory of God. So what Peter is saying here is that we need a tabernacle. We need to set up something agent, beloved, to protect us from the presence of God around you. He's probably telling James, get thinking quickly. John, we need something here. A solution is needed. And that is why Peter suggests three shelters, not six. He doesn't need one. But God must be sheltered. Jesus needs to be in one. And, you know, Elijah is reflecting all of that. So let's just shield Each give them one each, as it were. And notice it doesn't even suggest we need one only. Why? Because I would suggest that all of them six will get in. And he doesn't want to stay in this shelter with them. Peter wants Jesus around, but he wants Jesus away from him, right? There's a sermon in that, I'm sure. But we press on. The point is that the glory coming from Jesus and reflected in Elijah and Moses is too much for Peter to bear. Even as he's joyful about this glory in his own way. But the good news is that he does not have to worry. Because at the very moment that he wants to shelter from the glory of God, what does God do? God shelters them in his cloud of glory. Let's read on verse 7. 
Verse 7 says this, And the cloud overshadowed them. And the cloud overshadowed them. The coming of the cloud in the Bible represents the presence and glory of God. It actually shows up in the most important points in the Bible, especially in Exodus. Just take some time perhaps this evening to read through Exodus and just pick out when the cloud is showing up. You remember God led his people Israel by a pillar of cloud in Exodus chapter 13. Uh, He gave the Ten Commandments under a cloud in Exodus 19. And the list goes on. He spoke with Moses in the tent under a cloud. You can just keep reading and reading, right? But notice something here in Mark 9. While Peter wanted shelters to keep this glory of God away, the disciples now have been... It's almost like Peter's trying to run away and God is taking charge and he's enveloped them. They can't escape. <laughs> they, are, they are sort of being trapped in this glory cloud. Right? Why has God done this? Well, it's not just to communicate that I don't need your shelter. God has done this because Jesus, you see, is the glory of God made available to us. God is saying to them and us, you don't have to hide from me now. My presence doesn't need to frighten you now. Quite the opposite. In Jesus, I have come to share with you my glory. To partake, as it were, in the goodness of God. And this is confirmed by the voice of God, isn't it? Of God the Father. Let's read on verse 7. And the cloud overshadowed them, and the voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You see, rather than give the disciples and us a new physical temple and set up laws in the past, God gives them, them and us, Jesus. He's saying, this is my beloved son. God is saying, I am taking out my heart and giving it to you in Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have me. He is enough for you. And so it comes as little surprise that when the cloud disappears, what happens? What happens? Elijah and Moses also vanish. Look at this say. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. That's nice, isn't it? Just Jesus only. Moses and Elijah together represent the law and the prophets. They have left the stage. Why? Because the law is now fulfilled. In Jesus, the prophetic convergence has happened now. The law, Christ, is the end of the law, Paul tells us in Romans, doesn't it? Christ has fulfilled every letter of the law. All the prophecies were pointing to him. There's no need for Moses at one level, except to help us perhaps look more and more to Christ there. And there's no need for any prophets anymore. Christ has arrived. They have left the state because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But notice something wonderful here, isn't it? It's the gospel here. Jesus, is, his glory is veiled again. 
I love the fact that Jesus didn't go up in the crowd. I wouldn't be here otherwise. There would be no cross. I love Jesus. I love the fact that Jesus, his glory is veiled again. Why? Because as he remains now with that glory veiled in his incarnation, he's able to go to the cross. He's able to come down. Jesus must veil his glory because he has come to make us share in the glory of God. And for us to participate and share in the glory of God, Jesus has to get down the mountain and climb another hill and die on the cross at Golgotha. On the cross for you, beloved. On the cross for me. And by Jesus rising from death, Jesus will enable all who trust him to share in his resurrection glory. What they are seeing now, I mean, we can have many sermons here. What they are seeing in Elijah, they are seeing in Moses who died and is now back, they are seeing the picture. All those who die in Christ now, that's the glory that awaits them. What they are seeing in Elijah who was translated into heaven, is saying when Jesus comes at the sound of the trumpet, those who are alive will be caught up with him, like Elijah. They too will share in the glory. Because Jesus' resurrection glory begins now and in the world to come. And Paul tells us that, doesn't he? In Colossians 3 verse 4, you can look that up. This is the comfort of this passage. Through Jesus, you who trust in Christ now share in the very glory of God, and there is more glory for you to come. Now, we heard that truth this morning, didn't we? And God's Spirit, by His providence, is repeating to us in this passage. Now, I thought about this, and I thought to myself, hearing this truth is easy. Living by it is difficult. It's easy to hear Jesus is the glory of God made visible and available to me. Living by it is difficult. It is hard to believe you share in the glory of Christ when you're struggling to find work. It is hard to believe you are enveloped by the Shekinah glory of God in Christ when your health is looking very tenuous, when you're worried about the future. When things look like they're turning for the worse. It is hard to believe you share in the glory of God when your family relationships are strained. Or you don't seem to be getting a lot of support from people around you, whether at work or at home or in your neighborhood. It is hard to believe in these things when we live in such an evil and sinful generation. This culture we are living in. It is hard to believe we are sharing ourselves in the glory of God. But beloved, imagine if you truly believed that your Lord Jesus is the glory of God made visible and available to you. What would, how would your life look like? I think it would mean an end to glory hunting. All of us are searching for glory in many things. We are looking to the glory of many. The more money we have, the more we feel good about ourselves. We want a better family, don't we? We are looking for glory in the family. We want a better church, a supercharged church. We are looking for glory. I don't know why people do that, but they are looking for glory in the church. 
We want better beauty to look better, younger, attractive, appealing to the world. We want many things, better careers. We are glory hunters, all of us, by nature. Because we think these are the things that will satisfy. This is, these are the places we go to look for glory. Even churches are looking for glory. My sister laughs. Even churches are. They are. I don't mean chandeliers. In many ways, churches are, hunt, are glory hunters. Of course they are. They are made up of sinners. But this passage says, if you are in Jesus, you already have it. Stop hunting for glory in things that are passing away. That's what was Mark 8, verse 34 to 38 was about that. The world, the world, the world, the world is falling away. The glory of God abides forever. And if you are in Christ, you already have it. So if you believe this truth, you stop glory hunting. I think it also means we'll be growing in denying ourselves. We'll be taking up the cross. We'll be following him. If we really believe this truth, living for Jesus will come first in everything. The first question we'll ask every day when we wake up, if we believe this truth, is, Lord, how can I live for you more radically today than I did yesterday? Why? Because we'll be looking at Jesus. He left the glories of heaven for us. So that we can live for him. Such a savior who loves us so much deserves our life and our own. If we truly believe this truth, it would lead us to want to know this Jesus more. Because his glory is ultimately shared with us. I think if I believe this truth, my life will look very different. And I'm sure it's the case for you as well. Our life will look very different. We would want to abandon self-glory and live for the glory of Him. So, beloved, as we come to an end, I just want to encourage you that if you are trusting in Jesus, remember this truth. Jesus is the glory of God made visible. Jesus is the glory of God made available. Your response first is to come to God now. Bow down in worship. This is your God in Christ. Thank Jesus for being the glory of God made visible and available to you. And then ask Jesus to help you believe this truth. Cry out to him to open your eyes. Open your eyes, beloved. Ask him to open your eyes so that you can see the fingerprints of his glory on your life already. And the great plans that he has for you in Christ. Jesus is the glory of God made visible.